With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 88. It's always exciting and rewarding to release a new episode, but especially when so much thought and work goes into it, as is the case for this conversation. My guest today is Canadian author and historian, Dr. Nathan Alexander. He completed his PhD in modern history at the University of St. Andrews in the UK in 2016, and was most recently a fellow at the Max Weber Center for Advanced Cultural and Social Studies at the University of Erfurt in Germany. He is also the author of the new book, Race in a Godless World, Atheism, Race, and Civilization, 1850-1914, to which was published by New York University Press in September of last year. I started reading Nathan's book around the first of this year, and we recorded this conversation just a couple of weeks ago. Nathan poses a question in the very first pages of the book. Has secularization been, on the whole, beneficial or harmful to Western societies, especially with regard to race? He writes, and I quote from the introduction, The argument that secularization contributed to the development of racism, sketched in more detail below, goes something like this. Christianity held that all humans were created in the image of God and descended from Adam and Eve, meaning that all humans were literally related. Moreover, the Bible proclaimed that God hath made of one blood all nations of men, Acts 17.26, which struck at the idea that humans could be divided into distinct biological groups. As the influence of the Christian story began to decline in the 18th and 19th centuries, however, humans were no longer seen as part of one big family created by God, but rather as nothing more than another species of animal. From here, the argument goes, it was easy to begin speculating that perhaps different human groups had evolved or emerged separately. If this were the case, it might be possible to arrange these races into a hierarchy or even to consider some as less than fully human. Indeed, many white Europeans and Americans did precisely this in the 18th and 19th centuries, inevitably placing themselves at the top of the racial hierarchy and justifying racist violence against non-whites. The thrust of this argument is that secularization lamentably allowed for racism to take hold in our modern society. But there is another story to be told, one in which secularization offered new tools to oppose racism. The argument for this position is as follows. 
Despite Christianity's seemingly anti-racist message, in reality, the religion played a crucial role in the emergence of racism through its long history of anti-Semitism and its disregard for non-Christian religions. Africans, for example, were often judged to be irredeemably heathens, and in time as fundamentally separate from Christian whites. These religious divisions, in other words, helped to create and eventually cement racial divisions. Furthermore, Christianity gave divine sanction to slavery and justified the conquest of other groups on the grounds of bringing them civilization and the gospel. Jettisoning the authority of Christianity not only removed this unwarranted sense of divinely granted superiority, the argument continues, it freed people to see humans as they were, not as God's creations, but as highly evolved apes, all descending from a common ancestor. In this view, racism made no sense because races were all part of the same story of evolutionary descent, in which superficial physical differences developed over time, but had no deeper theological meaning. In contrast to the previous argument, then, secularization could be seen as a boon to the fight against racism, since it stripped away irrational Christian ideas about humanity and replaced them with ones based in science and reason. These two conflicting perspectives about the relationship between secularization and racism, each with a degree of truth, both focus primarily on the influence of Christian ideas about race. They point to the need for an examination of the racial view of atheists, a topic that no historians have yet addressed in any detail. This book tackles precisely that question. End quote. As someone who cares deeply about the issues of racial equality and justice in our country and around the world, indeed justice and equity in every realm of life, this question has been on my mind a lot, especially as we've seen the resurgence of scientific racism in the popular discourse, not least among some self-professed skeptics, freethinkers, and atheists. I hope you appreciate this conversation and that you'll pick up Nathan's book, which I found to be meticulously researched and beautifully written. I'll put the link to order his book in the show notes. I'm so grateful to the regular patrons of this show, which has slowly increased to 84 people, sometimes in this polarized climate growing the support for Life After God is literally three steps forward and two steps backwards. But thank you for your ongoing support. If you aren't yet a patron of the show and would like to be a part of the group that makes the production of Life After God possible and available for free to anyone who wants it, head on over to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod today and make a monthly recurring contribution of any size from $1 a month to whatever this podcast is worth to you. And thank you in advance. Now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Nathan Alexander. Nathan, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I've been really looking forward to this since I first heard about your book, uh, this new book you just uh, have out, Race in a Godless World, Atheism, Race, and Civilization, 1850 to 1914. Uh, I've heard about it before it was published and tried to get my request in early and have really enjoyed just finally finished it up uh, for the most part this morning and I've been super eager to talk to you about it. So um, thanks for agreeing to be on the show and for uh, all of your hard work on this amazing research. Well, yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for the, the kind words. So... I, I want to get into it, and then uh, maybe as we, I'll kind of walk through the content of the book a little bit, and then towards the end, reflect on, um, I'm really eager to get to this part, uh, to think about what 
the implications are of this history for the current moment that we're in. And you do touch on that at the very end. Um, But you start with this really provocative uh, premise or a question, um, which in my words, and then please correct me and and then express it in your own words, but what really drew me in from the very first words was this provocative question that you ask about whether religion, Christianity in particular in Great Britain and the United States, was a bulwark against um, racism or whether the demise of Christianity or the demise of like a ubiquitous religious framework in the United States and the UK actually paved the way for more racism or a, a more robust expression of scientific racism. So kind of which was it? Did Christianity... Is Christianity to blame? Who do we blame here? Who do we blame Christianity or do we blame secularism for racism? Is that sort of like what got you into this? Yeah, I mean, a few years ago, um, the, the way I sort of got into the topic is um, like I was in my master's, I was studying, well, I was interested in the history of race and racism. Um, and like, <clears throat> as I was doing that research, like I noticed all the ways that um, religion intersected with with race and racism. Um so, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I realized, you know, that there wasn't really anything about what, um, like, non-religious people thought about race and racism uh, during this time, or, or really any time, I guess. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it was really a question to figure out, you know, what, what did atheists and, and other non-religious people think about race, and then how, uh, you know, whether secularization uh open the way for racism or whether it offered new ways to, to challenge it. Um, and I think, I mean, in the, in the, in the start of the book, I sort of, uh, give, you know, two, two ways you can make an argument for either, either side. And I think there's a, you know, there's a kernel of truth in each, in each case that, um, there's something to be said for either side. Uh, but I think, yeah, I mean, the, the story I try to tell in the book is that it is a very, very complex, and it's not it's not a simple question, um, but I do sort of come down more on the side that secularization offered new ways to challenge racism. Hmm. Yeah, and I think this is a you know I think we hear this rhetoric in a much more simplistic form usually. And what I loved about your book was that it really complexified the situation right. and it really rang true to me that complexity that um, people are people and they have their you know, multifaceted motives for the things they believe and do. Um, and so, you know, kind of maybe if you would sketch out, I mean, and I think maybe it goes without saying for, for a lot of my listeners, um, but would you just sort of sketch out the arguments on both sides? Like what would be the best case scenario to say religion was the thing that sort of provided uh, rhetorical ammunition against racism, and then what was the argument that right. secularism opened the way for more critiques of racism? Right. Okay. So, um, so the argument that Christianity provided sort of a check against racism, I think, especially in the Enlightenment. So, in the 18th century, uh, you have more and more thinkers sort of classifying the natural world, um, classifying plants and animals, and so on. Um, and this also extended to humans that people began to classify humans into different races. Um, and from there, it, uh, it, it followed that some were seen as um, superior or inferior to others. Um, 
So the idea is that, you know, as, and, often, and oftentimes this, this Enlightenment thought was very secular. Um, so the thought is that Christianity, um, by saying that all humans are um, have a single origin in Adam and Eve, everyone is created in the image of God, um, you know, uh, there's just this sort of universal brotherhood that's, that's uh, taught in, in Christianity, that this sort of provided a check against... Um, against sort of viewing humanity in terms of distinct and um, inferior and superior races. Um, and that didn't so, really seem to stop there from being racism, though, right? I mean, it, it, it's, no, that, it, it, not everyone took up that argument. <laughs> right. No, that that's true. Um, but, but, I mean, I guess people on, who are making the argument would say, like, well, oftentimes... Um, abolitionists, for example, are, are, you know, especially drawing on these Christian ideas about, uh, the unity of humanity and everyone's equal and in the eyes of God and, and so on. I mean, it's not necessarily my argument, but one, you know, one could make that argument. Sure. Uh, but I think, yeah, you're right. It, it wasn't, uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't, uh, that successful given, uh, you know, the, the history of, of, uh, racism racism and and slavery and imperialism and all this all these things so when i was a christian you know i certainly deployed that argument you know uh to sort of resist any kind of dehumanization of of the other you know that we are all created in god's image or if you if i was in a more interfaith context you know that we are all you know have a moral um like unity you know like we're all sort of these divine beings, you know, imbued with divine uh, qualities or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so when I, you know, when I started into my journey in, away from religion and into the atheist and secular community, um, you know, the biggest thing I heard from people and that really attracted me to that community initially was that reason and um, science would be right. you know, sort of supreme rather than superstition or revelation, I guess to put it kindly, revelation, um, that reason was what we would use to evaluate evidence and come to conclusions. Um, so one would think that uh, any, whether religious or not, racism would come under severe scrutiny um, mm -hmm. by, mm -hmm. by science and by rationality, but that's not always the case either, according to your analysis. Right. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true, that science definitely has been deployed um, to support racism. Uh, yeah, oftentimes, in the, well, in the, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, and, to, and obviously it's just, it's today as well that uh, people use the language of science to, um, yeah, to cast certain races as inferior or, or superior to others. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, but I, I think also it's the case that be, because that's true, we don't need need to counter that with with uh, arguments from Christianity. I mean, you can also contest those arguments on the same sort of scientific or rational grounds. Yeah, absolutely. And and you talked um, in the in the early part of the book about these different theories of our origins, and you touched on it a moment ago. You talk about this single origin theory that right. we all come from a single origin, and, and according to the biblical story, that's God and Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. um, and then to counter that, before 
I guess, modern notions of of evolution emerged, there was a secular counter argument, which was polygenesis, that we literally grew from different trunks of the evolutionary of different trees, really. Um, And it's interesting that in the course of history, that monogenesis turned out to be true, but not for the reasons that Christians originally thought. Can you sort of walk us through a little of that? Yeah. So yeah, like you say, there are these two um, uh, these two competing schools of monogenesis and polygenesis um, that yeah they are debated and pretty much from af- after the time that Europeans uh, discovered the the New World that um, yeah the, the people living there like in the New World weren't weren't mentioned by the Bible and um, just generally looking around the world it seems like. Uh, races were very different and it didn't seem possible that um, people or these different races could have changed uh, and differentiated um, in the few thousand years that humans were thought to have been on the earth. So, so um, other thinkers came up with this idea that actually each, you know, each race had its own distinct origin so that 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 obviously sort of challenged the the Christian story, and there were theological implications uh, for that as well. Um, that um, you know, if everyone didn't come from Adam and Eve, then this means uh, Adam's original sin wasn't translated to all of humanity. Which also means then that um, Jesus's salvation is not, or for that original sin only applies to these. Uh, Adam's own descendants, which is not all of humanity. Um, so this sort of really uh, offers a major challenge to the Christian story. Um, yes, and then the, there's sort of racial and political implications with that uh, as well. Right, so there's a kind of motivation then on the part of um, freethinkers to adopt this polygenesis theory, not only because on the surface it seems to be self-evident that, you know, races are so different from one another in physical appearance that, you know, you might deduce without, you know, further information, you might deduce that, wow, we're so different. It makes sense that different regions of the planet would generate different people and different origin stories. Um, Mm -hmm. But they were also motivated, as you say, by a theological uh, drive to counter the Christian story. And I noticed this throughout your book that, that so often we think that we are free of motivated reasoning, you know, that we are Mm. really objective in our analysis of the evidence of even of science, which, Mm. you know, science doesn't have a political bias. Some people, you know, will say, you know, and truly facts are facts. Right. And, Mm. um, and yet the people who are reading those facts or interpreting that data do have biases. Mm. And throughout your story, you you see that people are they're looking for the truth of course and mm-hmm. and I, and i don't doubt their intentions but you also draw out the ways that they were motivated in certain ways and it, and it influenced the way that they saw the evidence yeah i think that's right um and i think uh yeah i mean even sometimes you see in the same in the same individual you know like their arguments slightly or their perspective changes based on like what they're trying to do in a particular argument. You know, if they're trying to contest uh, Christianity um, and it serves their purposes to 
um, uh, sort of say that the differences between races are greater than they'll they'll do that. Um, so, for, ex- for just for one example, um, Charles Bradlaugh, who's a uh, probably the most well one of the most prominent atheists um, in the 19th century in Britain, uh, who was the first uh, openly atheist member of parliament. Um, anyway, like he, he was very interested in polygenesis, um, particularly as a way to, to uh, cast doubt on the, the Christian story. Um, but he's also, uh, in other cases, you know, more as a politician, he's, he's a champion of imperial reform. Uh, he's uh, a great supporter of uh, giving gradu- gradual uh, home rule for India. Um, he's um, he's an advocate for the Maori in New Zealand who are, um, you know, f- uh, suffering under the the British rule. So it's sort of the, one's one's uh, perspective on race seems to change slightly, you know, based on what what sort of argument you're trying to make, like what you're trying to do. Right. And the, the sort of the, the driving argument or the driving concern for a lot of these folks was more the religious argument. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they had sort of pre-decided perhaps, and maybe, or, or maybe pre-decided is putting, being too critical of them, but they, for other reasons, you know, they had decided maybe they had found the Bible to be fallible for a host of other reasons and so then sought to discredit further the Christian narrative, and this was a convenient way uh, to do it. Yeah. Um, right. the, the Another great example of this that I really appreciated and, and kind of laughed to myself about here was this idea that, um, you know, our, and I always have to put air quotes around these, it must have been hard to write this without putting, like, <laughs> scare right. quotes around everything, but, like, this use of the word savages, I guess you just have yeah. to sort of, you know, explain once that, you know, right. you, this is not your view, but yes, then, exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but but then throughout the book we refer to you know there's we talk about savages and I'm like oh god like by the end of it I'm just like you know trying yeah. to like but you know the idea that savages or these these sort of godless well let me back up actually so mm. you talk about how there's this argument that people let's say from under or less developed or non Western societies are benighted uh you know because they're superstitious and mm-hmm. this is an evidence that they are inferior right because they have right. this, these god beliefs and so forth and then on the mm-hmm. other hand there are you know there are times that these so-called savages are referred to as godless and this is the evidence yeah. that they're savages so is it because they're godless or is it because they're superstitious you know like it's almost like they want it both ways depending on the moment or the argument yeah and i think it's even it's even the case that sometimes people, well, they might agree that there's the like so-called savage people don't have religion, but sometimes, you know, they, they say like, okay, the people are so primitive that they don't even have religion. (laughs) Um, But then, and then the same sort of, uh, you could also say, you know, that actually they don't have religion because they, they have a sort of, uh, primitive rationality that, that, um, immunizes them against religion. So, yeah, I think it's it's another example that one can look at, at the same sort of evidence and, and sort of make two different kinds of arguments from it. One, one of the interesting conundrums, and I think your book is full of conundrums and, and contradictions, you know, and I think this is what makes it so interesting that anyone who's trying to tell a simple story 
mm. about this is leaving a lot out and I really appreciate the the incredible amount of you know primary source research you had to do to uncover all of this um but one of the um the really interesting pieces was that there were a lot of free thinkers and religious people uh, involved in the abolition movement in the United yeah. States and in the UK uh who were still um, very much, I would say, racist in their views in terms of in the inferiority, their belief in the oh. inferiority of of uh, Africans or, frankly, other races as well, um, but felt that they uh, shouldn't be in, uh, enslaved. And right. it, it reminds me a little bit of... Um, of arguments that you might have about vegetarianism today where someone would say, well, you can't be cruel to animals, um, but certainly they're not humans. And so, you know, there's differences there and almost as if people are saying it's even if they're not the same as us or equal with us, right. we still shouldn't right. imprison them or, or enslave them. Yeah. And um, so it's grad, this gradual, like even people, I mean, a part of me is I'm looking, I'm reading your book and I'm looking for the hero in the story oh. and there's really no hero is there. Um, well, I think, I think that's, I think that's true probably in general for history that if you, if you go into history looking for a hero, like you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, but there are, I mean, I think like in the, in the final chapter uh, of the book, like I talk about these figures at the turn of the, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century who really are like quite progressive on issues of race and who are questioning uh racism but they're also questioning the idea that there is even such a thing as race like they're questioning uh whether you can talk about um different racial groups uh at all and particularly like around this time i think maybe we can uh it's it's difficult for us to to imagine today but like within europe uh people didn't just see like a single white race they saw a different a bunch of different white races. So like, uh, quote unquote, like Aryan race and, uh, Celtic race and, uh, Mediterranean race and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. so Italians and and Irish. Yeah. In the, in this country. Right. Yes. So people like, um, are beginning to question, you know, whether these sort of racial categories are even coherent. Um, but again, I mean, obviously again, like, the people I talk about, like they're not, even though they are quite progressive, like they're not, we shouldn't imagine that they're perfectly in step with uh, like 21st century um, progressive values about race. Uh, Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, you know, in the beginning of the story, going back to the mid 19th century, it's largely white philosophers and academics and thinkers and journalists and so forth. You know, because there isn't really a place in that world for African-Americans or Asian-Americans who are um, really suppressed and and enslaved. And so it makes sense that, you know, this whole story is told through the lenses of free white men, uh, primarily. And so it makes sense that they would see themselves at the top of the hierarchy of of evolution and really Mm -hmm. see that even though... You know, they might have these paternalistic, like this empathetic but paternalistic view yeah, of right. people that are different than them. You know, they, they wanted to lift them up in, in a way and free them from slavery. But it wasn't until 
folks like Frederick Douglass and others come along in the you know latter part of the 19th century early part of the 20th century that you start to see you know in your in this telling of your story that the the picture changes a little bit because the people telling the story are different mhm yeah that's yeah i think that's a good point um and I, yeah i mean you you're right to to mention that most of the the atheists and free thinkers that I talk about in the book are white. Um, but I can just uh, give a shout out to uh, Chris Cameron's uh, new book. And I know you've had him on, yes. on the podcast as well. He's got a new book called, called black free thinkers. Um, and I think uh, my book and his, and his book sort of complement each other well, because he focuses mostly on, or I mean, entirely on uh, black free thinkers uh, from the 19th century up till, uh, up till the 20th century. But yeah, I think I think it's it's the case that you know, uh, among these like free thought organizations, it was mo- like disproportionately white uh, white people and mostly men too. Um, yeah, the editors yeah, of these major papers and so forth, yeah, especially right, those that yes, were like yes. the mouthpieces of the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's so I mean, it's funny we're talking about the book, and I just I'm I'm gonna now just. Uh, stop resisting the temptation to talk about it in the context of where we are today. (laughs) Um, And I don't see any reason to, 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 you know, wait any longer. So, Um, (laughs) so I think one of the sort of ongoing critiques of the contemporary secular and atheist uh, communities, and there are communities, I don't think there's a single singular community in 2014, when I first left my faith and began to explore the atheist community, I wasn't at all clear what it meant, you know, the differences between atheism and agnosticism, let alone skepticism and free thought and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, what's another one? Like, there's there's so many uh, of these labels. Like sec- secularism. Secularism, and, uh, exactly. Yeah. I, th- I think there's still to this day, although it's, maybe in the in the scope of history as you've laid it out in your book and then going forward the change is happening you do have organizations and i know chris cameron is going to write an, another book sort of for the modern time kind of taking the, where he left off in his first book and move it forward in history we have um black non-believers uh founded by mandisa thomas we have um black skeptics of los angeles uh founded by Sakibu Hutchinson, and we do have black intellectuals, um, you know, working in this area and and really speaking in public and writing books that are adding to the conversation. But I think there's still this sense that the story of secularism, the story of, especially the history of secularism, is told through the the lens of these significant white men. Mm -hmm. And that this continues to be a challenge that the movement faces and again we can't go back and change history and and figure out you know like insert people that weren't actually there but but i think what chris cameron points out is that they are there you know they're just not being talked about and lifted up in in the common discourse would you do you agree with that and do you like how does your book fit into the contemporary discourse i guess is what i'm sort of trying to get at well maybe i'll just say just say something first just about um sort of the, this historical question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a challenge that people writing uh, the history of atheism, yeah, I mean, it, it is true that, it, I mean, my, my book is, is an example. 
that it is told mostly through the perspective of white people. Um, and I mean, I do think, yeah, h- historians writing the writing this history in the future. Uh, I mean, I guess you, they should sort of try and construct a history that's more holistic, maybe rather than to say sort of here is sort of the main story of atheism, which is mostly white. And then like on the side or there's sort of uh, black uh, free thinkers or other, other um, uh, kinds. I mean, I guess sort of to, yeah, to incorporate these all together in the same sort of story. Um, I think that's, that would be a challenge for, for future historians. Um, yeah. On the, on the current, uh, the, the ways um, race and atheism and, and uh, humanism or, or whatever uh, today, I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things to say about that and how my book fits in. I mean, I guess, one, one sort of thing I, I say at the end of the book um, to sort of say that atheists seem to have this sort of skeptical uh, mindset in general. And so this leads them to question all sorts of received truths in society, um, particularly, I mean, not most obviously religion, but um, yeah, in the 19th century, it was, many people or, or some atheists anyway, that, uh, because ideas about the superiority of white Western society was sort of the, um, the accepted truth at the time, this, this led many atheists to question that idea because they're interested in questioning all kinds of, uh, socially accepted truths. But now I think the, the, um, the sort of socially accepted truth is that all races are equal and, and so on. And so this leads uh, some subset of the atheist community uh, to, to want to question that, that particular accepted truth. And so you see like some atheists who are sort of, uh, yeah, interested in exploring differences in, IQs among races and, and, and so on. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's some, something I talk about at the end of the book. And I think that's sort of a concerning trend. Yeah. I think it's really interesting point that you make and you, you have this great quote from Chris Stedman um, hmm. there at the end too, that where he makes this similar point that part of what animates the skeptic movement, which is, I think there's a lot of overlap between atheists and skeptics and free yeah. thinkers, I mean, just by the nature of being a free thinker, it almost in the word itself, it, it sort of assumes that you're questioning received truths, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's almost a, a kind of motivation all by itself. It's not really a, a necessarily a pursuit of truth, although I mm-hmm. think right. ostensibly that's the goal, but yeah. it can just be skepticism for the sake of it. Um, right. You know, where you have and I, I've wondered this often about people who self-describe as skeptics. I, I I see skepticism less as an identity and more of a critical thinking tool that we should all have. Right. Like we should all especially now you hear something on the news and you should think to yourself, is that the whole story? You know, just it doesn't matter who's telling it or where you heard it. You should wonder, is that the whole story? Whose yeah. perspective is not being told here in this in this 
you know simplistic story and mm-hmm. and so yeah I, I think it's interesting that you that you bring out that this is kind of what led a lot of people to say oh the received story is that Adam and Eve were the parents of the whole human uh, species and and then skeptics said well hang on a second and then people said oh you know there's this obvious racial hi- hierarchy and skeptics said wait a second mm-hmm. um, and then Darwin comes along and you know blows everything up with a lot of his findings and and you know this is how things move along and and now we're to this place where you know you have people questioning all sorts of things and like i think climate deniers are called skeptics you know and right, right, right. and and that is a kind of skepticism to be honest i mean that's a kind of you know rejection of the received truth the more that people say 98% of scientists agree the more that emboldens these skeptics to say but what about the 2% this is the part we're missing this is the conspiracy and the more that you know charles murray's book is denigrated the more that it motivates you know, folks like Sam Harris to say, wait, what's being hidden from us here? You know, what's the secret? What the title of his episode on that was something like, um, yeah, I, I think it was forbidden knowledge. Yeah, I, I exactly. Yeah. Forbidden knowledge. Yeah. And it's almost like the garden of Eden, right? I mean, this is the story. This is right. like forbidden right. fruit, like the thing that's going to give mm-hmm. you the knowledge mm-hmm. of good and evil and God's yeah. keeping it from you. And, and yet, you know, I remember when I first came into the movement, uh, it was about the time that, Bill Nye was debated Ken Ham right. about yeah. evolution. And there were so many atheists and skeptics who said, this is not even worth debating because it's a closed subject. Like we don't, mm-hmm. creationism is so patently false and so obviously contrary to the evidence mm-hmm. that it's really only helping Ken Ham by giving him oxygen, you know, this type of thing. And right. yet this, now we see this kind of thing on the, on the subject of race or, you know, like you said, IQ or even skull size, like on Quillette, we have this thing, you know, people actually doing, you know, talking about phrenology as if, hang on a second, guys, hear me out. And, you know, it's, it's baffling to me that, that this kind of thing is, is happening. But I, I think this explanation that you offer is an interesting one that there's almost a contrarian for the sake of it type of uh, attitude. I mean, I still haven't totally wrapped my head around what's what's exactly going on. I mean, it does, yeah, I think it is the sort of contrarian for its own, contrarianism for its own sake, uh, which ultimately I don't think is a, really, doesn't really lead anywhere. Uh, I mean, it's not enough to form like a sort of a coherent ideology, right? Right. Um, In this sort of... Um evolving if i can use that word uh understanding of of race to the point where we recognize you know race is a a social construct that affects people's lives but doesn't live in our biology in the way that we once thought um that recognition societally means that there's some power imbalances that need to be corrected right and so you have things along come along like affirmative action and other programs that help to you know correct for long historical imbalances and there's plenty of those that are still um, still exist you know structural imbalances structural injustices that are still lingering in our society many of them and and that requires people like you and me you know white European folks to uh, relinquish some space and control in order for that rebalancing to happen. And I wonder, 
how much of this is also motivated by aggrieved white men who are basically just saying like, you know, I feel put upon by all of this social justice talk and mm-hmm. it's not the case that we're, you know, responsible for this, all these problems. Yeah. I mean, it is a difficult question because I think it is, uh, like the issues are structural. Um, and so it's difficult sort of to, to solve them on a sort of an individual basis. Um, but I, and I do, I mean, maybe this is a sort of a, a messaging problem with, you know, people who are trying to confront racism that I think sometimes people do sort of maybe individualize it too much, perhaps that, that people, yeah, like these, these white guys feel that they're, they're sort of under attack. I mean, I don't, obviously I don't, I don't agree that uh, that's the case, but I think uh, perhaps the way it's talked about could, could be uh, adjusted or, or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned, in fact, it's the very last sentence of the book, and I'll just read it because I think it's very, like, I mean, any good book ending on the, a note like this, you know, that gives you lots to think about going forward. Uh, you say, as secularization pushes atheists and other non-religious people from the periphery to the center what will be needed most of all is for this same skepticism that we've been talking about to be turned inward. Um, Mm -hmm. Just prior to that, you talk about how the skeptic impulse of sort of marginalized atheists and agnostics and freethinkers has been exercised outward to, to criticize religion or to criticize, you know, prevailing um, opinions that didn't comport with science and evidence. And now that I think, and I've, I've wondered about this in, in many different facets of society, but as free thinkers or non-believers or nuns or atheists or however you want to categorize them become the center, where yeah. do we turn our, now where do we deploy our skepticism? And yeah. you suggest that it should be d- turned inward. Say say a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you found that that the final line made sense and it was good. <laughs> That's, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, I, I do think, I mean, like, just like we were talking about earlier, like, you know, the sort of the aggrieved white guy, I mean, who, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that sort of skepticism maybe can be turned inward and say like, what's my motivation for, um, you know, being outraged about such and such a thing, uh, yeah, really to examine one's own motivations and, and, uh, question. Yeah. Like why, why am I, uh, advocating this particular policy or this sort of inquiry? Um, is it purely just, uh, because I'm really interested in the truth or is there something else going on? Um, yeah, maybe just, just to go back to the, the Sam Harris thing. Um, I mean, I should say that I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to Sam Harris. I'm, I am, I would still say I'm a fan despite, I mean, I disagree with him having Charles Murray on, but I think in general, I'm still sort of generally favorable to Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, you know, in the aftermath of, of him having, uh, Charles Murray on his podcast, there was the debate he had with Ezra Klein, um, which I think was maybe a month or two or more later. Um, but anyway, Ezra Klein is sort of criticizing Sam Harris 
who and Sam Harris in this case was sort of saying, you know, like I'm just I'm just interested in you know exploring the issue and um you know and so on. But I think you know maybe again like more sort of self examination of one's own motives and biases and so on. I think would be would be valuable. I mean, if I remember correctly, that interview or that conversation with Ezra Klein, Sam basically says that he doesn't have any right, biases. right, yeah, he, or he he knows his own biases and he he he's able to adequately uh, correct for them or something. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> adequately correct for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, which is, I mean, it's not, I mean, the whole the whole, I mean, the whole sort of uh, setup of science is is to uh, like you know, people do double blind tests and things like that so that their own, even if they think they don't have biases that nonetheless, like this won't interfere with the experiment. Uh, it's not enough to just say like, well, I know what my biases are and therefore, um, I'm, I'm totally, uh, neutral. (laughs) Yeah. This strikes me as really naive, uh, or, or motivated. And again, I don't want to impute motives to people that I'm not positive about. Um, and, but I know myself well enough to know that sometimes I, I am motivated to take a certain tack on a, on an argument or something, uh, or to get in a get in a dig, you know, or something. Yes. Um, and I I think it's um, yeah cultivating this healthy self criticism or mm-hmm. suspicion that I haven't got the whole story. Um, you know, I think researchers like yourself. And journalists are trained in this, right? They're, they think they have a story. And scientists, frankly, right? Like yeah, scientists yeah. are trained to, they put out a hypothesis. I, I suspect that this is true. They do a bunch mm-hmm. of tests and with the goal of either demonstrating that what they suspected was true or to refine that view or to toss it out entirely if they find out that it's completely wrong. Um, and I think there's a lot of things in life that seem logical from the surface like my favorite example frankly is evolution like i totally get how people are skeptical about evolution if they've never looked at it i was one of those people grazed in christianity it seems ridiculous to think that we could be sitting here talking over this technology and all of it came from nothing or you know it's just it doesn't seem possible um climate change you know large scale long term our brains are not evolved to really comprehend these things very well and and so the idea that the ocean could ever be damaged it's so big you know how much stuff would you have to throw into it to really poison it you know (laughs) and and yet here we are you know so i think this self self skepticism is so critical and Mm -hmm. so important going forward if we want to have a positive influence yeah i think yeah probably just generally any sort of political conversations would probably be improved. Like if people, you know, were not completely a hundred percent certain in their, in their beliefs and were willing to admit, um, or willing to sort of have their, their motives and, and their, their ideas questioned a bit more, I think would be, would be a healthy development. I think. One of the things that comes up in the scope of your book, but also is a much broader question is the whole notion of progress. And as a historian, I think you, probably think about this a lot um and and then on the cover of the book there's this word civilization which i feel like is a real hot button as well and like what people typically mean by that and and the way that the characters in your book talk about 
civilization and what they mean by that. How do you as a contemporary historian think about the idea of progress? What because progress implies a starting point and perhaps a, a ideal destination or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a good question. Um I mean, it's sort of a I think nowadays historians are really uh really really don't want to talk about progress and uh I mean, I definitely I I I see the criticism criticisms of that that yeah, it does it does assume sort of like a correct endpoint that history is sort of leading towards, which typically is like right now, I guess that me, you know, everything. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, so I mean, I, I definitely get the criticisms of that idea of, uh, and I, d- I don't think historians should should um, uh, you know assume that history has a sort of a direction towards. A, improvement um that said i mean i do think i think actually among historians i'm probably might be more sympathetic to the idea that that there is that we do make progress and um in terms of our knowledge and uh that we we know more about the world Mm. than we did um and that i like science and and reason tells us something uh real about about uh the, our world and the universe and so on and also that we make progress in terms of um well i don't know about morals but like sort of we make political progress i suppose that mm-hmm. i mean when you look at uh the situation in the 19th century in terms of yeah i mean in terms of slavery and in terms of um oppression of women and just uh, disregard for human rights and things like that. I mean, I think it's definitely true that we've, we've made progress in, in those areas. Um, although I, I think among historians and that may be somewhat controversial to say. Sure. Of course, I find it much easier to critique my own people. And by that, I mean, white people, Westerners, um, you know, Western culture from the Enlightenment Mm -hmm. onward, it's much easier for me to be analytical and critical of that. Um, You mentioned in the book towards the end as well that, you know, not to conflate criticism of beliefs and with, you know, racism towards an entire group of people. And of course, this is a a very hot topic as well, that the idea that we can and and the key, the key, I guess, focal point of this is usually around Islam. Um, that we can be critical of ideas as not as progressed, I guess, or not as um, modern and not up to kind of our modern moral standards and not be sort of racist. And I wonder what your what your take is on like how like what's the way to do that? Like how do you how would you recommend that we do this in a careful way? that is not stifling dissent because people are truly suffering under some regimes mm-hmm. which are uh, killing them in some cases, and if not killing them, truly harming them, and 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 yet at the same time recognize that um, people, you know, and, and groups of people, nations perhaps, are at where, the point where they are. Like, they just are where they are in history. We were at that place in history as well. Kind of, how do you approach this? Because I know it's so controversial, and it may be hard to even address yourself. I don't know. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a really difficult question. Um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's a there's a really good answer because it is true that, um, yeah, especially especially you know like a. I mean, it's it's so difficult. Like, because there are these lingering issues of. I mean, it's it's of imperialism and things like that, and right. it's sort of the the power imbalance of, of uh, people from the West, sort of, um, you know. Uh, opining on the the situation in mm. another country i mean it does have uh yeah there's um, a kind of irony there isn't there yeah and i, I mean just this sort of uh similarity to to past imperialism but at the same time i mean actually like uh especially um some like ex-muslim uh it seems that it's it happens that it's many ex-muslim women that i happen to be following on twitter are really sort of critical of this idea that we shouldn't, uh, um, you know, that people in the West just shouldn't talk about, like, situation in, in certain oppressive uh, Muslim countries out of fear of, um, you know, offending someone or, or whatever. And the, the, their argument is sort of that, like, this is in itself a kind of racism because it sort of assumes a, like a, a lower standard for for these other countries. Um, hmm. mm-hmm. So it's a difficult thing. I mean, I think, I guess one way is just to sort of perhaps to amplify like sort of dissenting voices within these, within these communities. I mean, if, if one, one has the ability to, to use a platform to amplify, right. Yeah. Voices of like ex Muslims. Um, and, and for example, that might be one way to do it. Although it is, it is a difficult issue and there's not, any way to be yeah totally free of uh these connotations of imperialism and so on right and i think maybe even just being aware that these challenges exist is a is a yeah. good step you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that yeah. it's it's not quite as simple as saying you know islam is not a race therefore it can right. it can never be racism you yeah, know? yeah exactly to exactly. to recognize that there is this complex intertwining of race, imperialism, history, of course, of imperialism, as well as, you know, religion and, and really yeah. bad ideas yeah. and really harmful ideas that, mm-hmm. that get people killed. And, um, but I love your idea, though, of amplifying voices that are in that community, because I think it's always more genuine when the critique is coming from someone who really knows from the inside, yeah. Yeah. what yeah. instead of especially as a, you know, someone who you know, as a historical descendant of these imperialist people, right, you know, right. it kind yes. of uh, you know, weighing in on these things can be, can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, Nathan, thank you so much. This has been great. I really did appreciate your book and especially as you said, and I totally agree in, in tandem with Chris Cameron's book, mm-hmm. which is a couple episodes prior. I talked to Chris about right. his book. I think together, you know, they, they make such a great um, pairing for our cultural moment in, in which I think we are more ready than ever to embrace the diversity that's been there all along to amplify stories of, of, of free thinkers who sort of buck the, the norm. You know, it's not just Charles Darwin and Carl Sagan. There were, you know, other <laughs> people, you know, out there who, who did remarkable work and, and some of these stories need to be resurrected. And I really appreciate you doing that yeah well thanks thanks for having me on and it was it was a lot of fun talking about it 
Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you were challenged and enlightened as I was by this conversation. The amount of painstaking research that Nathan put into this book is frankly staggering. If you're interested in the history of secularism and how that history intersects with the history of race and the Enlightenment in the U.S. and the U.K., I highly encourage you to buy and read the book. There are so many details there that we weren't able to discuss in this episode. You can find a link for the book in the show notes or go to your favorite bookseller and search for Race in a Godless World. Please also ask your local library to buy the book for their collection. I also just wanted to let you know that podcasts will get more frequent again, just as soon as the California primary election is over on March 3. As you may know, I'm running for city council in my hometown of Pasadena, so that has consumed a great deal of my personal time in the evenings and on the weekends. If you want to learn more and support my candidacy, you can visit ryanbellforpasadena.com. Thanks again for sharing a portion of your day with me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.